uh, it's great to be back. Um, yeah, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors at West Hills uh, Community Church in Morgan Hill, and we've been uh, really blessed and happy to be able to partner with you during this season or uh, during your pastoral search. Um, so I think it's my fourth or fifth time here preaching, uh, and I just, again, like, love being here with you all. You're a really uh, friendly church, and uh, that's something really commendable. I had a sabbatical last summer, and I visited eight different churches, and uh, it's hard finding a church that's this warm uh, with as many people who are serving and connected in ministry, and so take that to heart. It's a really good uh, aspect, a character quality of the church. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning, uh, from verse 12 to verse 19, and then uh, we're going to be in Zechariah 9 also, and so if you uh, might want to turn that there, a bookmark there, because it's kind of harder to find later on. Uh, Zechariah is a little bit harder to find than John for whatever reason. Um, you might be more familiar with John. Um, but we are going to be focusing in on uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus in Palm Sunday. Uh, but let me pray for us before we jump in. Lord, we're thankful for this time in your word, and we do pray that uh, your word would not go forth void, Lord, but you would um, indeed do what you promise in Isaiah, that it would come back fruitful, uh, that your word would convict us and show us areas where we need to grow and change, that the Spirit would be using the Word to apply to our hearts uh, that uh, sanctify, sanctifying work. Uh, and God, I know there's some of us here who um, are, are in need of encouragement. I pray the Word would be encouraging as well. And uh, the, the set of worship, God, just tied into everything we're going to talk about today, uh, from humility to the kingship of Jesus to the peace He brings. And so, Lord, help us to, to be saturated with that truth that uh, the kind of king that you provide for us, the kind of king you call us to surrender to is a good and gracious king, uh, a different type of king than what we're used to in the world around us. And so, Lord, uh, be at work among us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so if I was to ask you what comes to mind when you think about a king, uh, what, what pops up? What characteristics, what images, what things come to your mind when you think about a king? Uh, for many of us, it's probably not the word humility. Uh, maybe it was spoiled for you in, in the worship set and with Darren's uh, talk, um, but many of us, I, I promise, if we're just like thinking on a random day, it's, it's probably not the word humility. Uh, that's not what we think about with kingship. Usually when, when it comes to power and, and uh, we think about corruption or abuses of power, and usually that's associated with kings. Whenever you have uh, images in movies or in uh, uh, media around us or books, usually people who have great power are, are the ones that are the most corrupt. And uh, we have uh, images of that all over. Uh, there are very few positive images typically of kingship in our culture. We have maybe uh, like Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings, right? Or maybe you uh, have been following the stuff with the British monarchy with the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And uh, I hear she's a great person, really humble and joyful, and maybe you're just really ticked that Charles is the next one in line. I don't know where you're at with that. Uh, people at our church are really into it for some reason. But despite what you think, uh, we don't really live under a king in our country. Our country was founded in rebellion, and that goes down deep into us feeling like kings are suspect. To have a king is to uh, be put under corruption. But what if I told you that one day, the whole earth from sea to sea would be ruled by a king. How would you feel? To the ends of the earth would be ruled by a king. Well, how we feel about that would typically be determined by what kind of king that king would be, right? 
And scripture tells us that our future is that there will be a king who rules forever in new creation. Jesus will come back and usher in his kingdom. And it'll be a kingdom marked by peace and love. But our experience with the idea of king comes with a lot of suspicion because we associate it with corruption and pride. We're not used to people ruling with love or using their power to bless others. Uh, maybe you've heard the phrase, it's kind of a popular phrase from, uh, it's attributed to a guy named Lord Acton, but uh, he says, with power, um, um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we're suspicious of power because many of us have seen power used over us negatively. Uh, there's a Christian author named Andy Crouch who writes about power and technology and culture, and he commented one time about being on a panel uh, of speakers, and uh, this topic of power came up, and there's a woman on the panel who commented that power is a reality, but we have to do all we can to limit its damage and to contain it. And so she kind of viewed power like a lion in the zoo. Right, when you go to the zoo and you see the lion habitat, like you know that animal could just tear you apart, but it's behind walls, it's contained, it's limited. So we want to go see the lion, but we don't want the lion to get out. And so her view of power was mostly negative. The idea that power is always going to lead to corruption, you have to contain it. In her mind, it was always negative. It could be she had been on the receiving end of the abuse of power, but Crouch talks about how power is actually a gift. We have a hard time thinking about it with positive thoughts or thinking about it as good because more often than not, we're unaware of power unless it's being used against us. We're only aware of it when it's being used against us, but we all have had people use power positively in our lives. Think about coaches and mentors and teachers and counselors and parents. Those people use power to help us. And some of us have really good managers and good leaders and good parents right now. But we're not used to people using their power to the benefit and good of others. And so we have not had a king with that kind of authority. And so two reasons come to mind why it's scary for us to imagine living under a king. First of all is that some of us, um, to have someone in authority over us is scary because we can be harmed. And some of us can have been abused or have been under that kind of authority And the Christian life, though, whether we like it or not, is one of submission, submitting to God and to God's ways. And thankfully, God is good and his love is steadfast and he's never unjust. But there's still a risk whenever we say, not my will, but your will be done. It's always a risk. And so for some of us, the idea of having a king is scary. But on the other end, many of us just don't like being told what to do. We want to be our own king, and so we confuse autonomy with freedom. We confuse having autonomy with freedom, and we'll unpack that at the end of the message here. What the gospel offers us is freedom, not autonomy. Autonomy is to be independent. It's a desire to live our lives on our own terms, but freedom is living a life unhindered in our worship to God, unhindered by the effects of sin and death and self-righteousness, and we're going to explore that later on. And so our passage today presents the kingship of Jesus, because today's Palm Sunday, it's called by many the triumphal entry, and we get in our minds, when we think about a triumphal entry, like a conquering army entering a city, or maybe a parade for your favorite team that won the championship, but the irony is that the triumphant king Jesus enters the capital city of his kingdom, Jerusalem, on a donkey, 
not on a war horse. And the crowds were shouting his praise and calling for salvation. But as we explore the passage, they had a very different view of what that was in their minds than what Jesus viewed. What salvation would mean. The crowd thought something very different than what Jesus was bringing. And so the questions are, what kind of king would he be? What kind of freedom would he bring to them? And I want us to see the main idea this morning, that Jesus rules by laying down his life. He rules by laying down his life, and he brings freedom, ironically, as we submit to him. As we submit to Jesus, we become more and more free. And so as followers of Jesus, we get to submit to a better kind of king. So I want to see two things this morning. I want to see just the expectations the crowd was bringing to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And then I want to unpack three aspects of Jesus' kingship. And at this point in the service, they're not going to be surprising. They're going to be things that you're going to be expecting, that he brings humility and peace and freedom. And so let's look at the expectations of the crowd. John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took out branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. These events marked the beginning of Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life before the cross. If you divide John in two, three years of time from John chapter 1 to chapter 11 And then one week from John chapter 12 to the end of the book, one week of his life takes up half the book of John. Over the last four weeks, right, they experienced the impact of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and the crowds of people around were growing, and more and more people were clamoring for him to be their king. And John's gospel focuses on the kingship of Jesus more than any other of the gospels. So far, he's been called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, He's gone into the temple and he's cleaned out the temple. People were buying and selling stuff, something that a conquering king would typically do that would cleanse the temple. He was asked by Nicodemus, one of the main Pharisees in chapter three about the kingdom of God. Jesus admits to the first person in the gospel, to the woman at the well, that he's the Christ. And even at one point in John chapter six, verse 15, the crowd wants to take him by force and make him king. And so he escapes from the crowd because it's not his time. So the crowds knew he was a king, but they struggled to understand what kind of king would he be. On the one hand, he displayed this great power and miracles and taught with authority. But on the other hand, he didn't look like a king. He didn't dress like a king. He didn't pursue power like a king. He didn't act like a king. In our passage, it's one of those times where Jesus does the exact opposite of what they'd expect a king to do. Um, some emphasize him as the new Moses, the one who was going to be the prophet and teachers. Other wanted to be the new David, the conquering king. Either way, he was trouble for the Romans. And he was disrupting the religious leaders in town, in Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. There was a large crowd gathered, and they had come to the feast because they heard he was coming to Jerusalem. There was a loud crowd gathered uh, because of the raising of Lazarus. Look back at chapter 12, verse 9, a few verses ahead uh, before. Um, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they had come not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This crowd was growing. They wanted to see and hear Jesus. And it was the time of the feast. This was Passover. 
which is the Jewish festival where they remembered how God delivered them from slavery and oppression in Egypt. Uh, historians guess that the normal population of Jerusalem was around 300 to 500,000 people at this time. But during the Feast of Passover, the city would swell to three times its size. Three times its size to about a million to 1.5 million people. Jamming the city full of people. And it's likely, it's not in our text of scripture, but it's likely that as Jesus was riding in to Jerusalem on one side, that around this time, maybe within a day or two, Pilate, the Roman governor, was entering the city as well. The Romans had a military outpost on the Temple Mount where Pilate would bring like, authority and he would bring uh, control and, and crowd control to the city of Jerusalem during this time of festival. It was like their 4th of July. It was their Independence Week. And so the, the tensions in the city ran hot. And so the Romans sent the governor with a band of soldiers to come in to keep the peace. And that was Pilate, the local governor, who will come face to face with Jesus in just a few short days. And he was only really in Jerusalem during these hot spots of the year. And so at this point in time, Jesus was hanging outside the city of Jerusalem, but on the Sunday before Passover, he goes into Jerusalem with this large, large crowd hearing that he was coming. They make their way out to greet him. And so this large crowd at the feast heard about him and went outside to meet him. Look at verse 18. We're told again this is all related to the fame of Jesus around the events of Lazarus. The reason the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the large crowd, a really full city, a national holiday celebrating their freedom from slavery, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? This crowd came out with the equivalent, though, of waving flags and banners declaring freedom with shouts and waving. Verse 13, they went out waving palm branches and they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. What did they expect from Jesus as he entered Jerusalem? First, they expected a physical kingship to be restored to them. They expected a physical king and a physical kingdom. And that's part of the shouting. They were crying out, Hosanna. It's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 25, where the people of God cried out, save us, O Lord, we pray. Hosanna means give salvation now. Now is the time. Now is the time for deliverance here. But salvation from what? When we hear that word salvation, we, we typically associate it with being saved spiritually, but the crowd then probably wasn't thinking that way. They're probably thinking in the way of we want deliverance from our oppressors now. But the ancient Jewish people thought about physical freedom Save us now. And so they were shouting Hosanna. But the second thing they were doing is they were waving palm branches. Why? Why palm branches? Well, it goes back to the last time Jerusalem was independent as a nation, 200 years before this moment. 200 years before Jesus, there's a thing called the Maccabean Revolution, where the Jews drove out the forces that occupied the land, and they celebrated that victory with music and waving of palm branches. And it became a symbol of freedom. Get this, they even made coins during those years of freedom and the image on the coin was palm branches because that became associated with the idea of independence. 
So much so that when Jerusalem rebelled again against Rome in AD 66, and later on in AD 132, the revolutionary forces also made money with the images of palm branches on them. And also note what they called Jesus at the end of verse 13. They called him the king of Israel. And they weren't wrong, but it was a different kind of kingdom than they imagined it would be. And so these palm branches were symbols of revolution, and these crowds weren't just waving them because it was convenient. They were waving them and shouting Hosanna because they expected a physical king. It's kind of like, imagine if you were living in Nazi-occupied France during World War II, and you hear that a revolutionary leader was coming into Paris, and people lining the streets, waving not the Nazi flag, but waving the French flag, and shouting, deliverance is now. That's what's happening with Jesus coming into Jerusalem under Roman occupation, under Roman authority. They're waving these flags for freedom. Could you imagine that? And so they expected this physical king and this physical kingdom. But their expectations were built around that because they've also had a bunch of of wannabe messiahs before this. Um. Jesus was not the first person to get this kind of treatment. There were others who were called the Christ or the Messiah who led or tried to lead political and military revolutions before Jesus showed up. The Bible mentions two of them in the book of Acts. Um, in Acts chapter 5, verse 36, uh, this is after Jesus died and was resurrected and went back to the right hand of the Father. Um, the uh, religious leaders trying to make sense of what's happening with this, this early church. And this teacher, Gamaliel, uh, says this in uh, verse 36. He says, Before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So Gamaliel says this, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan is undertaking a man, it will fail, but if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. And so they took his advice. So the, the, the Jewish leaders are struggling with, what do we do with the Jesus movement? And this respected leader, Gamaliel, said, leave it alone. If Jesus is fake, it'll go away, but if he's real, you're going to be opposing God. And so he gave them two examples of people who were wannabe messiahs before Jesus. One of them was Theodos, who rose up claiming to be somebody. He was killed, dispersed, nothing happened. The other was Judas the Galilean, who rose up during the census, having about 2,000 followers. The census is mentioned in connection with what event? The incarnation of Jesus, right? During the time of the census when Quirinius was governor of Syria, like the hardest verse to say in the Bible, (laughs) But at that time, when Jesus was born, there was a guy who was claiming to be the Messiah. And he had 2,000 followers. And Rome crushed his rebellion. And historians tell us that this Judas the Galilean and 2,000 were crucified as a message. So Jesus, from Galilee, would have grown up knowing about this. He would have grown up knowing about the Galilean who rose up. He would have heard about the story. He would have been living near where it happened. And we also know that there are other wannabe messiahs after Jesus. There was a guy named Simon Borgiora who started the revolution in AD 66 that led to the destruction of the temple. 
Uh, he gained popularity announcing freedom for the slaves, which is Exodus imagery. He wanted to defeat the enemy, clean out the temple, establish a kingdom, and instead Rome came in and destroyed him and the temple. And then after that, there was a guy named Simon bar Kosaba, which means son of the star in AD 132. This revolt would lead to the destruction of the walls around Jerusalem and ultimately end any sort of hope for independence they'd have. He'd actually have some success, and Simon, though, ruled as a type of king for about three years as Rome mustered up its full force of its military might and came in and destroyed the city under the emperor Hadrian. And so these common things about these, these wannabe messiahs, they wanted a physical kingdom and military might to establish Israel again. And so they brought these expectations to the Messiah. They brought these expectations to Jesus. Would he be this kind of king? We all bring unspoken expectations to God. We all bring things we want him to do. We tell him how we'd do things if we were king. And God can often disappoint us when he doesn't fix things or rule the way we want him to rule. We think that because things don't go the way we think they should, he must struggle with being king and needs our help. And so this crowd brought these unspoken expectations that Jesus would bring a physical kingdom, but Jesus was doing something different and offering something better. So with that backdrop, here comes Jesus. And Jesus was stirring things up. He knew what he was doing. Look at verse 14, chapter 12, verse 14. So Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He knew exactly what he was doing. He's fulfilling a prophecy in the Hebrew scripture about the Messiah, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine to 10. John quotes verse nine for us here. Your king is coming on a donkey's colt. But if you were to flip back to Zechariah 9 and read verse 1 through 8 to get context for what this prophecy means, you find sort of this hit list that God was going through to judge his enemies, to judge the enemies of Israel with his power and might. Zechariah 9 verse 1 through 8 presents God as a warrior God, a warrior king. But then there's this huge turn when it gets to the Messiah in verse 9. The people of God wanted the warrior king God to show up in the Messiah. But Zechariah prophesies a different kind of Messiah in verse 9, where he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. For behold, your king is coming to you. What kind of king will he be? Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what will God do? Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. What? That's the people of God. Why would God cut off the war horse and the chariot from his own people? And the battle bow shall be cut off because he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so Zechariah 9, verse 1 to 8, is about God bringing judgment to the enemies, cutting them off, but a turn happens in the text of Scripture when it comes to the Messiah. Who is this king? What does this king bring? I want us to say three things about the kingship of Jesus. First off, he is humble. 
His kingdom was marked by humility. The expectations of a king are turned upside down. Behold, your king's coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey. Entering the city on a donkey was a sign of humility, a sign of peace. And he chose a beast of burden, an animal that no self-respecting king would enter a conquered city on. The beast of burden would be in the back, loaded down with food. It was only something you would ride during a time of peace. And so his life and ministry were marked by humility, which means that if you want to become more like Jesus, it means becoming more humble. It means taking seriously Philippians 2.4, that to be like Jesus is to consider others more significant than yourself. How's that going? Uh, I was praying for one of my kids um, one time uh, before bed, and uh, I, was praying, I was praying for them to have humility, and I'm praying for, this, for them out loud. I'm like, I pray, God, that you bring more humility into this child. You know, and my, my, my kid stopped me and said, hey, uh, Dad, what, is, what does humility mean? And so I think it was like, I think the kid was like five or six at the time. And I said, uh, and he real, the kid really struggled with like putting himself first, like most kids do, but, but even more so than our other kids. And so that's why I was praying for humility for them. And um, I said, um, well, to be humble is to consider others more important than yourself. And the kids reply back, why would you pray for that? And I'm like, that's why, because of that response. During the conversation, they eventually said, don't you pray for that. I mean, if only we were that honest, right? Because we often feel that way, don't we? We like the idea of other people being humble. And obviously, uh, their question was the reason I was praying. Uh, to, be humil- to be humble is to be self-forgetful. That's what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, he defined it famously that way. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Uh, to be self-forgetful. Um, Jesus being self-forgetful means that even though he alone has every right to make every interaction with every person all about him, he alone in the world has that right. As the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, everything is about him. For through him and for him are all things created. He alone has the right to turn the conversation back to him and his greatness. Even though he has that right, he did not do that. He was constantly looking to bless and love other people. And when hurting sinners were with Jesus, they didn't leave drained. They left his presence floating on his love, having interacted with someone who truly cared and showed compassion. And so humility is a joy-filled attentiveness to the needs of others. It's not diminishing ourselves, but a shift in focus away from the impulse to see other people as a means of gain. And so good kings think about how they use their power. Good leaders think about how they use their power for the benefit of others. That's what makes a leader good. So first, humility is, sorry, um, his kingship was uh, marked by humility. And humility is being selfless, self-forgetful. Humility is also sacrificial. Jesus was riding this donkey into the city of Jerusalem around Passover, right? Because he'd be the Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. He'd be the servant king, destined to be glorified and exalted on the cross where he would bring 
freedom from sin for his people. And so as mentioned before, this marks the beginning of the end of his earthly life, the last week of his life. He knows going into the city of Jerusalem that he's destined for the cross. He's destined to be crucified outside the city for the sins of the world. He knows what's going to happen at the end of the week. And so he enters his kingdom ready to lay down his life. That's the kind of king we worship. So it's selfless, it's sacrificial. Humility also serves. A humble person's not about themselves. They're willing to sacrifice and they're willing to serve. We'll read about Jesus doing this in chapter 13 where he washes the feet of his disciples, even the disciple who betray him. When Jesus defined greatness, it was in terms of how willing you are to serve others. Uh, his disciples argued about this all the time. They'd argue, hey, Jesus, who's going to be at your right hand or your left? Who's the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus always turned the conversation back to, if you're going to exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted because the greatest among you is the one who serves. The greatest among you is the one who serves, which is why Jesus, being the greatest among them, takes the towel in chapter 13 and washes their feet. Because greatness is tied to being willing to serve, putting others first. Their king lived a life where he served. And so this kingship is marked first by humility. Second, this kingship is marked by Jesus being a king, not just for Israel, but for the nations. He's going to bring peace to the ends of the earth. Verse 13, they called him, in chapter, John chapter 12, verse 13, they called him the king of Israel, right? But that's true, but he was more than that. Look at Zechariah 9, 10. I'll cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow should be cut off. And what will happen? He'll speak peace to the nations and he'll rule from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Again, Zechariah 9, 1 through 8 presented this God as a warrior cut off the enemies of Israel, but then it turns to their weapons being cut off him cutting off the weapons of war from his own people, and his king brings peace as he rules, peace to the world. Now, this did not happen in a physical sense in the days of Jesus. He did not bring peace to the ends of the earth in his first coming. He'll bring that during his second coming, for sure. We look forward to a day when God will make all things new and new creation. But to an extent, this is happening in our midst. Jesus bringing peace to the ends of the earth. We're at the ends of the earth. The disciples would never have dreamed about a congregation of people singing Hollister, California, and the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the Roman Empire to our place and space here and now. In a spiritual sense, Jesus' people are all, all over the world. There are more Christians in South America and China and Africa than in the global West. God's at work to make his name known around the world was exactly why the irony, there's so much irony in verse 19. We haven't read this verse yet, but verse 19, the Pharisees critiqued Jesus. Look at this. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, they were thinking of the crowd. They were thinking of the, the people of, of Jerusalem. But there's irony here because one day the world would go after Jesus. And the very next passage in Scripture here, the disciples come up to Jesus and say, hey, there are some Greeks seeking you. There's irony here that the people outside of the kingdom of Israel are seeking Jesus, while the people inside the kingdom aren't. 
That's a lot. Are you with me? This king is not just about one nation or one people group, but Jesus is drawing the nations to God, reconciling them to God, and creating one new people, the church. And so this kingdom is marked by humility. It's marked by being a kingdom for the nations, bringing peace to the world. But finally, this kingdom brings freedom. But that freedom involves surrender. Jesus' entrance on Palm Sunday on a donkey was a declaration that he was the king and the Messiah that they were looking for. It's not how they expected. And he would bring freedom, just not how they imagined. What enemy was Jesus going to defeat? It wasn't Rome. This event kicks off Passion Week. Passion being the word throughout history to talk about Jesus' death on the cross The last week of Jesus' life culminates in his death for our sin, his resurrection to make new life with God possible. It was about establishing God's kingdom and bringing God's freedom. And so the people cried out, Hosanna, save us now. God save us, and they meant Rome. But God was doing something in Christ to defeat a much greater enemy of sin, death, and separation from God. And so the good news of the gospel is that we can receive forgiveness from sin, and be saved to a relationship with God through the work of Jesus. And one by one, people throughout all of history, all throughout the world, have found freedom through forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God through the cross. Today, you can be part of his kingdom. Today, you can experience inside-out change. You could experience the type of humility and service and peace that God brings because of his sacrificial love, because he defeats the enemies of sin and death to give his people new life. But it involves surrender. It involves a change of allegiance. It involves submission to a good and gracious king, and it means following him and living like his kingdom subjects. What what do you think about when you hear the word surrender or submit? When you hear that, you might be thinking control. But that's not what this is about. If God wanted to control you, he could. Right? All power, all authority, all wisdom, all knowledge being everywhere present. It's not about control. I had a student in my youth, I was a youth pastor for 10 years uh, back, back a long time ago. And uh, I had a student who confessed that she thought religion, from the very beginning, religion in general, Christianity in particular, was made up by a group of parents to control their kids. Right, have you had that thought before? I mean, come on. Like, and that happens often when we make it all about the rules, right, and stuff, but we've all chafed under the authority of our parents at one point or another. If you haven't done that, like, you're just holy. I mean, you should be floating in the room. I don't know. Like, we all chafe, we all rebel, we all push back against the authority of our parents' rules at some point in our life. And so she was being honest. And sure, many of us use, uh, have been, um, many of us have seen spiritual authority used for abuse and control. And so, yeah, it can be hard to trust God when we've been hurt like that. But the reality that boundaries exist, that God has given us his law, does not make him controlling. Rather, he shows us in his word how to flourish and grow as people who are finite. There's something about God, he's infinite. And something about us, we're not. We have boundaries. There's limits to what we can do. And so God in his goodness has given us in his law and his word a sense of how to flourish with those boundaries. You can't do everything. 
You can't be everything. You're gonna get tired, you're gonna get hungry, you're gonna, you're gonna sin, you're gonna need salvation and forgiveness. How do you flourish? And those boundaries lead to freedom. My, my former youth group student couldn't understand how God would give us boundaries in his commandments, but they are meant to lead to freedom. She thought it was about control. And so freedom's not the absence of restrictions, but finding the right restrictions to live under to help you flourish. Talk to people with addiction, right? I mean, they're controlled by that. And they're not flourishing with the absence of restrictions. I think the best way I've heard this illustrated is that, um, think of a fish, right? A freedom for a fish is not to be out of water. That leads to death. Freedom for a fish is to live within the boundaries that God created it to live in. It wasn't meant to breathe oxygen or move around on the land. And so we too are created with limits and that's a gift, it's a good thing. And so the scripture tells us that we're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. We either serve somebody or something. The question is, what are you serving? And is it good, does it lead to life? What Christ offers is freedom, not autonomy. He offers freedom, not autonomy. Those are different things. Autonomy is self-government, self-rule. It's being able to follow your heart, to be true to yourself, to be authentic, to be your own king. And our world pushes us towards autonomy. You hear it in every story now. It's like the air we breathe in this moment. But how have you been doing running your life? How's that been going? If you're in a place where you feel like you messed up and you're looking for hope or change, just a few more life hacks or best practices or five steps, whatever it is, whatever you think's gonna fix it, how's that going? Jesus is not just giving us good advice about how we could tweak a few things and move on. He's offering us good news that you don't need to carry the burden of autonomy. You don't need to be your own king. But you can follow him and that he's trustworthy, that he's good, that he's the good shepherd that leads his people towards life. And that's why the Christian life is marked by surrender. Specifically, that means that we admit to God that we're unable. We ask for God's help through Christ and the Holy Spirit, and we look to his word where he's revealed to us how we're designed to live. And it requires the surrender of all, all of our life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we often like lie during worship songs, right? When we sing, I surrender all, we really mean I surrender some. <laughs> I mean, you guys do not mean I, I, I surrender all my life, right? So it's like, <laughs> I'm perfect in every way here. But we hold something back thinking that we need to control this thing. That to actually take up our cross and follow Jesus is, is, to, is to somehow be um, controlled by God instead of being led towards freedom. When the Bible talks about putting to death the old self, it wants you to put to death the things that are trying to rule your life and lead you to death. And so Jesus riding into Jerusalem the way he did, he's bringing freedom. And since he's humble and bringing his rule to the world, giving freedom as we follow him, we can trust him. And that's why he declared his kingship the way he did. He's offering us something different than what we'd expect if Jesus just did what we expect, we'd be limiting Jesus. He does so much more than we expect. And he offers us a different kind of king to follow, one who's humble and loving, who brings peace to the nations and changes us from the inside out.
And so that's Palm Sunday. That's the king we celebrate. And that's the king who this Friday, right, will lay down his life on the cross. Should we celebrate his death? We call it good because his death leads to life for us. And the king who rises from the dead to defeat death. Those are the enemies that Jesus came and defeat. Those are the enemies he's delivering us from. Sin, death, and separation with God. Let me pray for us and ask God to make us more humble, to help us to worship this king in truth and beauty and goodness. Let me pray. God, there's so much in um, the beauty of what you do, what you did in uh, the Gospels. There's so much beauty to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And how that moment was charged, Lord, politically in the day where they knew the prophecy, they knew this is a mark of the Messiah coming, and they were hoping for freedom from a tyrant ruler from the Roman Empire, then and now, thinking you bring back their nation and their place in space, Lord. But God, you looked beyond the immediate needs of your people. You looked to the future. You knew, Lord, about this moment right here, right now. That bringing salvation from sin and death and separation from you, Lord, would lead to a flourishing in the world that cannot be described by the disciples in their present time and moment. And Lord, so we know all around the world right now there are people who are gathering to worship you and celebrate you, Lord, to speak about your peace and your goodness and the humility of Christ and the life that he gives. And Lord, after we pass, there will be people all around the world doing the same thing until you come back. And that moment, the ends of the earth will be ruled with peace and justice and goodness under the kingship of the good and gracious King Jesus. And so, Lord, in the meantime, help us to surrender, help us to submit, help us to see that it's okay to let you be in power over us. You're not going to abuse us. You're not going to use us for your own gain, but you're going to use your power to lead to life because the kingdom of your son Jesus is marked by humility, sacrifice, servanthood, peace, and that leads to our freedom. God, it's a scary thing to place our lives in your hands, Lord, but it's a good thing. You have greater wisdom and knowledge and love and power than we do. And so God, as we think back to this moment where the the crowds are shouting, save us, and spreading out their cloaks, and Lord, we, we sometimes ask for very limited things from you, Lord, that we don't really understand or know and or expect, and God, you're so good to give us a thing more than we could hope for. And so God, as we sacrifice, as we surrender our lives, as we give it to you, Lord, would you do something great with them? Do lead us towards freedom, holiness, love, goodness. And God, we ask for all those things.